0: Thank you, men. It's a good word for us. It's still amazing, this grace that we've been talking about, this optimism of grace. But I want to take you back in time to Enfield, Connecticut. (laughs) Once upon a time in (laughs) Enfield, Connecticut. When the men were strong and went, no, yeah. <laughs> trying to decide what to do next, so. <laughs> I think I'll preach this sermon. What do you think? That's great. That's perfect. We look out at our world today, and we say, "You know, it's never been like this before." A world that seems to discount God and rebel against him, not want anything to do with the church or Jesus. Or but on July 8th, of 1741, that was the status of Enfield, Connecticut. A little New England town, when all around that town there was all kinds of things happening in our area. They had a name for it, they called it the Great Awakening. And in that Great Awakening, people were finding Jesus and their lives were changing, but there was this town in Enfield, Connecticut that was like resisting So this educator, this scholar, this preacher preached probably what some would say is the most famous sermon ever preached in the United States. His name was Jonathan Edwards. And some historians say that that Jonathan Edwards stood in the pulpit, took his sermon, his notes, adjusted his glasses, and began to read the sermon like almost monotone. The name of the sermon was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he began to read that sermon, and what happened was people began to scream. Some people began to hold on to the benches. Other people began to declare that they were falling into hell. In fact, it got so out of control that Jonathan Edwards had to stop pre- He never finished that day. It wasn't the first time, by the way, that he had preached that message, but that day in Enfield, Connecticut, in this town, in this world, in this place, just like our world. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. So here's my question. Is God like an angry old man who's holding us over the pits of hell? You see, many people view God that way. Many people view God as this angry God who's just waiting for us to mess up. And and when we do, that's it, I'm cutting it. In you go. It's unfortunate, but many people believe that, and it's unfortunate that many Christians hold some of that thinking too. But, But let's be clear about something real quick. When we look out on the landscape of our world and we see the blight of human trafficking and sexual abuse, and we see the destruction that drug addiction and drug trafficking cause, when we see the wanton disregard of the sanctity of human life, whether it's an infant or an elderly person or someone disabled or the poor, When we see the penchant for the violent and self serving use of power, when we see the implicit and explicit racism that we tolerate, when we see the uncivil and crass contempt for those we disagree with, when we see the exploitation of sexuality for our own purposes and not God's glory and God's purposes for us, when we see the self righteousness of the church, I have a question for me, for us. I wonder what God thinks about that. See, human rebellion and self-absorption cause God to be like the artist. Imagine the artist who gives her life to painting the masterpiece of her life and then she presents it for all the world to see and the world says, look how amazing that is and then some vandal comes along with some spray paint and spray paints it. By the way, that's happened to the Mona Lisa three times. It's been defaced three times. Uh, The artist becomes both angry and incredibly sad. Not at her masterpiece, but at the vandal. In a very real way, when I talk about all those things, see, that's like God. Sin has been the vandal, has vandalized the image of God in us. And so God, as the master artist of creation, gets angry. There is no room in our Christian faith to try and make God more palatable for our generation by pretending God is not angry about sin. His heart breaks over what sin has done to his creation so we can't like pick and choose what we want to take from the bible and just kind of form our faith around all the nice places we want to live in god's word so we read words like this from ephesians for of this you can be sure no immoral impure or greedy person such a person as an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of christ and of god Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. So we've got to hear those words, and we've got to say to ourselves, you know, let's not try to bend God into our image to make our sin or the sin of our world more acceptable. God is holiness, and holiness and sin are incompatible. But this is what I want you to get. God is so holy. He's the only one who can grab hold of sin and do something about it. He is so holy, he's the only one who can do something, grab it, get hold of it, and do something about it. I'm sure you probably heard the saying, wait till I get my hands on you. Right? See, like, I'm really familiar with that saying. And it was probably because when I'd be running out the door, It'd be my mother saying, wait till I get my hands on you. That was probably right after she said, wait till your father comes home, right? So we have this image of those words as like this angry parent. And maybe we think that God looks at us like the angry parent and wants to get his hands on us and punish us and hold us over hell. And some people interpret God and sin and hell that way. But I want you to remember where we started with all of this. We didn't start with you, with me, with sin. We started with the character of God. And we must remember the character of God if we're going to really understand grace. One of the readings even for this Sunday that churches around the world are reading comes from Lamentations chapter 3. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. Grace, the grace of God, is getting what we do not deserve. And the mercy of God is not getting what we do deserve. So when Paul's writing these words we're going to read to the Ephesians, we've got to remember something about them. Many of the people in that environment were pagan worshipers, worshiping at the Temple of Artemis, for example. And what they were doing was they were trying to appease the pagan god. Right? But what we must understand about the true God is God doesn't want us to appease him The Lord God, our creator, redeemer, Redeemer, and sustainer is the God who wants to welcome us. So this is God's approach to mankind in all of our sin. This is God's approach. N.T. Wright said it best. Redemption has to do with God acting because of his unchanging, unshakable love for his people. So this isn't a God who's holding people over hell. This is a God who's opening his arms to all people. The God who desires to restore us to what we are intended to be. So what we're going to look at today is we're going to look at the God who looks at us. He looks at each and every one of us with a smile on his face. He has a smile on his face like the master sculptor looks at a piece of clay with a smile and he says, wait till I get my hands on you. Wait till I get my hands on you and I form and I shape you and I make you into something beautiful. I cannot wait to get my hands on you. You received this card today and there's those questions. Have I allowed God to get his hands on me? And if not, why not? Because this God wants to Make me something beautiful. Have I placed my life into the hands of this grace-giving God? And as a result of that, how have I been changed? Stand with me as we look together to Ephesians chapter 2 from well-worn words that many know today. Hear the word of the Lord. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Jesus. That you would help us see how you so want us and welcome us to place our lives in your hands, in the hands of a grace giving God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we read those words and we, we find out that we've just landed on the beautiful shore of the soil of God's grace. For it is by grace. You have been saved. Grace. But remember, grace is not a thing. It's not some magical material that God, like pixie dust, puts over us. Grace is God's loving activity. His very real presence, as Jeremy Treat said, God gives us himself when we don't deserve it. That is grace. Grace is a gift, but God is not only the giver, he himself is the gift. God graces us with himself. And because that's true, grace now isn't a thing. Grace involves relationship. And as Randy Maddox said it so well, it becomes responsible grace. So what do we read in the text? Let's be true to the text. It says this in this beautiful word, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. So grace isn't just something that falls on us. But rather, it is through faith. And what is faith? Some people use the term blind faith, or no. Rather, faith is our affirmative, willful response to this loving activity of the living presence of God. It's this affirmation of God's God coming toward us in Christ. It's this loving response, this the beautiful gift of God. To us is grace. We, we, we kind of labeled it this way last week. It's this stubborn determination of God to give himself, his love and mercy, his power and presence, his forgiveness and holiness to you and me. This determination by God to do that, our response, faith is our response to his unending loving activity toward us. That's what faith is. And, and something happens. Lord, what happens to me? When I put my faith, when I put my dependence, when I, when I put the weight of my life on Jesus, what happens to me? Well, yes, God. By faith, I find your forgiveness. Isn't that good news? By faith, I find your mercy. By faith, I find your love. We sang about it this morning. Your love is a real deal, man. By faith, I find your love, and your holiness. By faith, I find your presence in my life, Jesus. And yes, I now live an eternal kind of life. I live my life around eternal truth in the eternal presence of God. So when sinners get in the hands of a grace-giving God, something amazing happens. It's the beautiful, amazing gift of salvation. And, And it's not just... Listen, I'm going to pray this prayer and take care of the sin problem. That's not salvation. It's this beautiful movement, this activity of God's grace toward us that actually produces real life change. Now. Instead of last week, Dallas Willard Willard put it this way, grace means that God enables us to be active to a degree we have never been before. So grace not only does something for us, it does do that, but grace does something to us. I love that thought. We are saved not just from our sins and ourselves, we are saved for something. We are saved from something, and we are saved for something. And so this means transformation, life transformation. When a grace-giving God gets his hands on us, the journey towards wholeness begins. It's a transformation. It's about alignment. It's it's about something very powerful. Last week, we talked about that theological term, provenient grace. Well, when we start talking about what God wants to do in salvation, we now start talking about another theological term, and that's the term sanctification. And what God begins to do when we turn our lives over to them is, this is so beautiful, he cleanses us. He cleanses us of the guilt of our sins. Praise God. Anyone here want to be cleansed of any guilt? Right? Come on now. That's what God does in in this great work we call salvation. It's not just, let me pray this prayer so I can like kind of have a transaction that makes me think that I'm okay and I'm going to go to heaven. No, this is the actuating presence of God in my life that begins to make me into a new person that actually delivers me from the guilt of my sins. A beautiful picture that is for us life that is distinctly formed by the presence and the power and the truth of jesus we are awakened to new life now this is not you need to know this is not some new idea though many people when we say what does it mean to be saved they think it might just be to pray a prayer take care of our sin issues and we're good to go That's that's actually a new way of thinking. This is not a new way of thinking. This is the way, biblically, it's been through the beginning of the church. Let me tell you a story. Peter and his friends, his fellow associates, were thrown in jail. This is why they were thrown in jail. Because the religiously elite among them were not happy. Because you see, for them, their religion, right, gave them certain things. For them, the religious were content with a religion that made them comfortable, gave them power, and for some of them, even gave them wealth. Along come these disciples who say, nope, that's not what it's about. It's about the kingdom of God and about God ruling over your life and about Jesus being in the center. And oh, by the way, what that means is Everyone is the same height at the foot of the cross. What that means is the poor are now lifted up and elevated. What that means is that the kingdom of God is what matters, not the kingdom of your religion. What that means now is is that the call on you isn't to be served, but to serve others. And they got upset. Because, you see, these guys were undermining their thing. So the religiously elite made sure they threw Peter and his associates in prison. Well, the cool thing is, while they were in jail, an amazing visit from an angel tells us why they were such a threat. This is how we find it in the Bible in Acts chapter 5. During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, the angel said. Here it is. Tell the people all about this new life. Notice what they didn't say. Tell the people all about this prayer they're supposed to pray. Now, don't walk out here and say, Pastor Jeff thinks we shouldn't pray a prayer asking Jesus to be our Savior. If you were here last week, you know that I did that, and I believe in that. But that's not not the whole ball of wax here. Tell the people all about this new life. That's in the Bible from the very start, a new life, a different way to live, an alignment around Jesus and his king. That's how, if you want to know what the kingdom of God means, it's alignment around Jesus and the truth of him that he taught. Jesus forgives our sins, praise be to God, because Jesus is interested in making us new people, and our sins and our guilt get in the way of us being new people and being what God intended us to be. Ephesians 4, it says, when you heard about Christ, you were taught to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And that's what happens when sinners are in the hands of a grace-giving God. Let me ask you today, how do you want to be made new? What part of your life do you say, I need to be made new here. What temptation do you keep giving into? What sin do you keep stumbling over? What peace in your life you know isn't aligned with Jesus? Here's the really good news. God will go up as many flights of stairs to chase you down as he has to. Because he's on, he's on to you. <laughs> he's on to me. He's coming after us. He comes after us with his grace and his mercy and his love. Because he wants to make us new people. If you're a Christian today, ask yourself, how have I become a new person? What has God changed in me? What has God delivered me from? And celebrate that. I don't know how to describe what happened to me when I came to faith. I talked a little bit last week about that, but I began just to see the world differently. And I know some people want to default to the idea of the worldview, and I understand what we mean by that. My worldview changed. But you know, it was like suddenly someone gave me a new set of glasses and said, Jeff, put these babies on. And I went, Whoa. I think, I think Lucia. Helps me most. Lucia is our foster granddaughter. I just remembered what she said to Mary-Kate a few weeks back. She was talking with Mary-Kate and she said this. She said, Mary-Kate, you've taught me to love God. And then she said this. Before I met you and I met God, my life was black and white. But now I live in color. So I want you to think about that. Are you living life in color? Because what happened to me was God began to change the way I saw the world. I began to look at people as not people to use for me, but rather people to love for God. I began to surrender to him my problem with addiction and began to break that grip. He began to deliver me from fierce anger. I was an angry, angry young man And he began to lead me away from a life of immorality. Now hear what I'm saying. He began. He began. And I began this journey with him of new life. And here's the good news for all of us. He's still working on me. And you, right? So his grace is still working, is still active. The point being this. He began to change my desires and my passions because grace did something for me. It forgave me my sins. But then grace also does something for, to me, to us. This past week, obviously our our staff knows the sermon that's coming and the worship leaders are preparing and Pastor Serena put on my desk, said, you gotta read this. And I read it, and I said, I'm going to use it. It's a long quote from Paul Tripp, but it says it so wonderfully. This is what grace does. It rescues us from our spiritual blindness. It releases us from our bondage to our rationalism and materialism. Grace gives us the faith to be utterly assured of what we cannot see. It frees us from refusing to believe in anything we cannot experience with our physical senses. But grace does more. Grace connects us to the invisible one in an eternal love relationship that fills us with joy we have never known before and gives us rest of heart that we would have thought impossible And that grace, well, that grace is still rescuing us because we still tend to forget what is important, real, and true. We still tend to look to the physical world for our comfort. We still fail to remember in given moments that we really do have a Heavenly Father. Grace has done a wonderful thing for us and continues to do more and more for us. Amen. This idea of salvation is so much bigger. It's like, it's like this beautiful multifaceted piece of glass where the light shines through with all these different colors. We're saved. We're saved by grace through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is this gift of God, not of works so no, not one of us boasts. This salvation, and that word salvation has that idea of yes being saved but also has the idea of rescue and it fundamentally has the idea of being delivered just like the children of israel were delivered out of the 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 desert and their sin in the exodus god wants a new exodus in our lives where we are delivered so we can be his people so we can be the people he wants us to be in this world this is so big and here's the key this isn't like some self-help project. Because here's the truth. All of this, none of us can do by ourselves. All of this, none of us can do by ourselves. It requires the loving activity of God. So if you have a medical problem that requires surgery, this is what you do not do. You do not go home and go, you know, I could do this. You do not go home and go on Amazon and because you're a Prime member, you'll get it in two days. And and nowadays you might get it in one and you order some surgical supplies, right? And then you go, you know what? I'm just going to lay on my table, kitchen table. I'll take care of this problem. No, we don't do that. We first of all go, I recognize I can't do this, right? We go to the doctor. We go to the surgeon. We go to someone who has skill, knowledge, understand. They understand the disease problem and they understand the solution. And this is what we do. This is what we do. We surrender to them. We say, I surrender. We put our total trust in the surgeon. God is like that. So with God and his grace, we humbly surrender to the surgeon of our hearts, and there we find true wholeness. And it is then that God can really begin to produce his masterpiece. It is then that we begin to become truly human and the lights really go on and we can look through the lens and say, that's what life is really about. And we become a living canvas in which God paints his masterpiece of grace upon. I love the way the New Living puts verse 10. For we are God's masterpiece He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Man, I need to say that to myself over and over and over and over again. And maybe you do too, but I I should probably paint that on the side of my house. You are God's masterpiece. Right on the garage door every time I pull in. And maybe I like the way the voice says it better. For we are the product of his hand, heaven's poetry etched on lives created in jesus heaven's poetry that word workmanship in our english bible comes out of a little greek word "poeme," which literally has the idea of poetry as you can imagine so so here's the deal you are god's poetry in motion i am god's poetry in motion We are the expression of a master artist making something beautiful. And then with changed lives, God's plan for changing the world comes through us as we reveal Jesus to the world, the one who can change us. Because grace is more than personal You see, now I arrange my life to become like Jesus, not for the sake of myself, but for the sake of the world and the glory of God. Let me remind you of something I said this past summer. It sits on the wall in my office, now next to my desk. These words from J.D. Walt, because Jesus is good news and Jesus is in me, I am good news. Today I will sow the extravagance of the gospel everywhere I go and into everyone I meet. Today I will love others as Jesus has loved me. Because Jesus is good news and Jesus is in me. I am good news. We don't think about it that way. But you know what some of the best news for the world is? You and me with Jesus in us. Because if he's really the good news and he really lives in us, that means we bring the good news, we are the good news to this world. And that's what salvation does. It's so much bigger than just some transaction. Salvation, we discover the good news. Sins are forgiven. Mercy is offered. Eternal life is how we live now and forever. And we become the good news to the world around us. That's what happens when a person allows themselves to be put in the hands of our grace-giving God. Praise be to God. Our pastors are going to come, and they're going to help us prepare for communion today. And as they do, we're going to do something a little different this morning. What we're going to do is, we're going to just start playing some music here in a moment. And as we play that music, we're going to have four stations available for you. I want you to think about that card we gave to you. And you have, the, you have the questions that are there. When you come for communion, eventually we'd like you to come out of the left side, come to the center or wherever your station is, then return back with the elements. But before you do, we would invite you to think about those questions. Have I allowed God to get his hands on me? Have I placed my life into the hands of this grace giving God and how have I been changed as a result of that and then as the Lord would lead you this morning we would invite you to come to the table of grace for grace has been given to us and we're invited to give our lives to him as you come today you come as an act of your faith of your affirmation this activity of God in your life and receive his grace. As the Lord leads you, I invite you to come to the table of the Lord this morning. On the night before Jesus was crucified, he took the bread, gave thanks to the Father, and he broke it. And he gave it to his followers, and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. And then he said this, Do this in remembrance of me. As we remember, let us remember grace given to us in what Jesus gave to us, his everything. And let us be thankful. Let us partake of the bread. Jesus then took the cup. Again, he gave thanks to the Father. He gave the cup to his followers and he said, this is my blood of the new covenant given for you for the forgiveness of sins. Then he said again, do this in remembrance of me. Let us remember that this God of ours, grace-giving God, forgives us of sin because he wants to make us new people. And let us Place our faith and trust in him and celebrate and thank him for what he's done for us. Let us partake of the cup. I invite you to stand with me as we sing in closing about this amazing grace.